0: Chapter 3, the local church. I think for many, the beginning of their Christian walk starts out like mine did. Once you start seeking, you begin seeing all the things in the word that people are doing wrong. And in your zeal, you begin calling them out. Learning how to love in truth and show love in truth is most certainly a journey. But expressing zeal for God doesn't always turn out the way you sometimes think it will. One of my biggest errors, I feel, in my quest for truth was that I indirectly began separating myself in heart from the church as a whole. When I looked out, all I could focus on was the corrupt business-like system most of them operated in, not realizing that by, only, by separating myself from them entirely, I was only remaining part of the problem, not part of the solution. Regardless of what I see now, my view of modern church led me to separate from any notion of church membership as I wanted nothing to do with being associated with something I saw as unbiblical. This withdrawal was largely in part to my own pride, though it was veiled to me at the time, as pride often is in its beginning stages. I would have pastors and friends question me on why I wasn't a member of any local church, though I was still heavily involved in several churches. Any arguments they provided me with, I would quickly refute, saying, We're all part of the body of Christ, and membership to a specific local church is not found in Scripture, thus unbiblical. I wanted nothing to do with membership to any local church, because all I saw was politics, corruption, phonies, and greed. I know it sounds harsh, but I'm just trying to be honest with what I saw back then. However, I was wrong. I wasn't necessarily wrong in my assessment of the corruption, but of my refusal to truly plug in to help be an instrument of change. I think there are many Christians today who are like I was, trying to live out their Christian life apart from any involvement and commitment to a local church, There are many reasons why a person might find themselves in this type of situation. Maybe they were hurt, which I feel is most often the case, rebelling against any idea of submitting to authority, afraid of accountability and vulnerability, or hesitant to commit and invest in order to maintain control of their own lives. Perhaps they don't see the importance and need to live life with a specific group of believers. Or maybe they just don't feel like there is a church out there worthy of their time and investment. Maybe they won't get involved because there isn't a church that agrees 100% with them on doctrine as if they had the corner marketed on truth. How prideful we humans can be and how easily we can be deceived when our focus is off of Christ. But the reality is, regardless of the reason some shy away from an intentional involvement with the local church, it is sin. Yes, it is sinful. It is not his pattern and will change nothing for the kingdom of God in this world. It is selfishness and pride masquerading as a feeble attempt at being holy on our terms. It's worth noting before moving forward that the word church, ecclesia, is used 114 times in the New Testament. And do you know how many times it is specifically referencing the local church as opposed to the global church? Arguably, depending on your take on certain passages, approximately 70 to 80 percent of the references are pertaining specifically in context to the local church seems to me that god puts a heavy emphasis on the local church in his word let me give you the story of how i came to realize my error one day as i sat down with the pastor he gave me an article written by a popular pastor on church membership I read it and acknowledged that he made some valid points. It was well-written and compelling, but I still wasn't even close to being convinced, reasoning away the fact that he was a man, and I was basing my view off the word. During this meeting, the pastor and I had some good discussion on the matter, but nothing swayed me from my pride. Pardon me, I meant my conviction. Fast forward to two to three years. I'm now a teaching pastor in a small fellowship that we started in our home. At first, things were exciting, fresh. And seemed to be working as the absence of membership seemed to create an atmosphere of quote unquote freedom that we all liked. But as time went on and distractions and cares for other things crept in amongst the masses, the commitment to one another as a body began to falter and the excitement faded. I began to see that the people we were attracting to our fellowship were ones who had little desire for any structured atmosphere Thus, the commitment and sacrifices we were making for the fellowship were not reciprocated and prioritized over the things of this world by the majority. It was as though we were like newlyweds who, when the new wore off, the routine became more work than we initially realized. As a result, it became difficult to maintain that fresh and vibrant feeling we once had, and commitment and devotion to one another swayed in the waves of distraction. I became frustrated Discouraged and consistently struggled with the feelings of wanting to quit ministry altogether, feeling abused and taken advantage of for all that we had put into each person who was coming. I came to realize that my bigger struggle was feeling like a failure as a man, as a pastor, and as a son. I know I had my flaws, and unfortunately, I oftentimes wore my emotions on my sleeves instead of taking them to the Lord as I should have done. Regardless, I soon realized that while we were making friends, We weren't developing a brotherhood. A brother of mine whom I now serve with in our home fellowship at the Grove, formerly served in the Army. He has said on several occasions that one of the hardest things about adjusting to quote-unquote civilian life after active duty was feeling the void of missing a brotherhood he once had. It was as if there was a hole left in his life when he returned from overseas. I think we can learn a few things from this. You see, in order to establish a brotherhood and not just friendships, you need several things. One, you need a common aim and purpose. You cannot be divided on where you are headed and why you are headed there. Matthew twelve twenty Two, you need to suffer together and for each other. You can't have a healthy, close-knit family without sacrificing for each other. Three, you need to be mutually committed and sacrificially invested to one another more than just a day or two a week. You cannot neglect one another for other relationships, especially worldly ones, and the shiny lures of the world cannot sway your devotion to each other. And four, you must establish a growing trust and loyalty with those you serve with by showing utmost respect, courtesy, vulnerability, and priority to one another, which is aided by consistency in the previous three traits. If any one of these four things lies broken, the relationship will never go beyond friendship at best. As trust will never be fostered to grow. Isn't it a shameful testimony that secular worldly bonds can be of a greater magnitude than the bond shared in Christ through the spirit of God? Have we forgotten that we too are in a war? Yet one of much greater magnitude and significance. So because of this lack of developing brotherhood I began to wrestle with our model of how we were functioning as a church. And I began to be burdened with the need for greater commitment to one another. I began to see that true, perfect love can never be attained without true, perfect sacrifice of oneself for the sake of another. As long as the members of a church are not fully committed to one another, in both word and action, love can never grow. Ephesians 4, 11-16 Thus a family can never form. As long as the world or the things in the world consistently take greater priority over each other, the relationship can never be built on trust. Therefore, for a family in Christ to function in perfect love as a family should, there must be sacrificial devotion to one another. We must know one another, trust one another, and commit to one another. This means that everything must be on the altar in our united pursuit of Christ with each other. Everything. Without this, there will be no growth or maturation of the body as a whole. So I started searching the word. Consulting respected friends, pastors, and mentors, and reading articles on the arguments both for and against local church membership. I ran across an article that seemed familiar, but I couldn't place why at the time. After reading this article, I began to see my ministry unfold exactly as his had. It was as if I was reading an account of my own experiences. He wrestled with the idea of church membership as well in the beginning of his ministry, and he began to see that the people coming to his fellowship were mostly those who had a bad taste in their mouth from the modern church for whatever reason. He struggled with securing commitment from those who were part of his fellowship, and establishing any sort of an authoritative structure was nearly impossible. This article hit me in a way that no article about church membership had penetrated my heart before, because it was like I was reading an account of my own ministry. So I commenced to study through the word, 1 Timothy and Titus specifically, hoping to find something of confirmation to what, was, what I was beginning to see more clearly. I saw Paul telling Timothy to remain in Ephesus so that he could establish proper doctrine and order of eldership among them. I saw Paul commanding Titus to remain in Crete so that he could establish order and appoint elders in every town as Crete was an island of about 3,200 square miles. Did you catch that? Elders in every town. That means that there wasn't just one functioning body in a region, but multiple churches throughout each region with separately functioning elders in each church that would work together for a greater purpose. Check out what Paul says in Galatians 1, 2. To the churches in Galatia. There it was again. In fact, churches showing the plurality of multiple churches in a region appears 34 times in the New Testament. How had I not seen this before? God commands there to be elders in every town who govern over each individual expression of the body of Christ in a local church. Oblivious to it before, I saw that God even laid the pattern for his church body within our physical bodies. Just like the body of Christ is compassed of millions of churches, every body has millions of individual cells which make up that body. Each individual cell has its own individual structure, its own control center which governs that cell, it doesn't govern the other cells, but rather manages its own, making sure that all works properly so that it can grow. Not only that, each part of that cell, being governed by the nucleus, is committed to that specific cell. The mitochondria aren't all spreading themselves thin among the, all the other cells. They operate in their intended role within the confines of the cell they belong to in order to benefit that specific cell and ultimately the entire body. Then, once the cell has grown, it eventually splits into two identical replicas of the original, thus producing the process of multiplicity, biblically known as being fruitful and multiplying in a spiritual sense. It is the purest form of fulfilling the command to go and make disciples. It isn't a command meant to be executed by an individual, but as the church, we are commanded to make disciples together The same illustration is found in an earthly structure of family. Moms and dads don't govern the children of others, though exchange counsel does happen, as it even does with elders. They are responsible for their own, and the children are responsible to honor and respect their individual parents as the authority. Through these constructs, God has given us a physical example of something of greater worth. The local church is God's grand design to go and make disciples, and be fruitful and multiply thus to abandon the model we abandon god it was at this point god began to get my attention but i still wasn't fully sold yet yes i know i can be a little stubborn but with something as important as this i needed to be convinced through the word i still needed to see more proof even though i should have already received enough it wasn't anything i saw that finally convinced me though it was what i heard that closed i'm sorry it was what i heard that closed the deal god asked me a question i could not answer in my current belief if church eldership is biblical, which I knew to be true, then what is its purpose, absent of a group of people being members or committed partners with one another? Phrased in another way, eldership is pointless apart from membership. I always had an answer for any question man could pose to me, but for one of the first times, I was speechless. I guess that's what happens when God poses the question rather than man. Man. Being humbled is a good thing, but sometimes in its initial happenings, it can be a difficult pill to swallow. I saw it. I finally saw it as clear as anything I had seen in Scripture before as everything now culminated into a clear picture. If there was no need to belong to and unite with a specific group of believers in the structure of the local church under specific and biblical leadership, then there would be no Scriptures in the Word that reference the need for elders to govern and the need for members to submit to them. Yet the entire New Testament is littered with passages commanding both. You can't have elders without having those whom they are to have a specific charge over. Now, you might have already guessed it, but just in case you're still wondering, the article I found was the exact same article I was shown just a few years prior by the pastor I met with. I just wasn't ready to receive it initially. I guess I had too many rocks in my soil. Reader, please don't make the same mistake right now. So, what was I to do with this revelation? How can I begin to implement membership with people who had gotten so used to quote-unquote freedom? You do what needs to be done. You just do it. We charted up a membership covenant to which we expected mutual commitment to one another as a partnership for Christ, as well as expecting a proper level of respect and courtesy to be displayed towards the fellowship, the leadership, and ultimately to God, First Peter 2, 13. We solidified what our vision was for this individual body and shared it with the group. Then came the hardest part of all. We enforced it, which admittedly is not something that comes easy for me. I'm the nice guy who always wants to give the benefit of the doubt. However, I'm learning that I cannot leave God's church by being a pushover who always shrinks to placate men. Many people left, refusing to be held to the biblical standard of accountability, transparency, partnership, and commitment to one another. In fact, when we implemented the covenant, there was not one opposing person who gave me a single scripture to validate why they thought it was unbiblical. Every argument was based on opinion and hypotheticals, two things that must never leave the charge of our actions. Sometimes, quote-unquote, cleaning house is the best way to regain order of a mess. But there were some who remained. It's still a struggle, as we are all learning how to be committed to one another through our commitment to Christ. But in the recent months preceding the publishing of this book, I have seen the birth of something absolutely beautiful in the group God has given us to nurture and foster an unrivaled love for Christ within Men standing up for Christ in radical ways at their jobs. Others willing to quit their jobs to be more involved in the fellowship so they can radically pursue Christ. Women who are eager to learn how to be better wives and mothers surrendering their wants and desires so as to better glorify Christ. Some are growing into their roles and finding their gifts. Some are having an intense hunger for the word grown in their hearts, often ingesting hours a day in reading. Just the other day I heard about a couple who stayed up until 3 a.m. reading the word together and they didn't want to put it down. And one of the coolest things to see is, for the most part, everyone is sacrificing for one another out of their love for Jesus. Just the other night, a brother went up to the local restaurant, opened 24 hours to study in the back room, and opened it up for any of us men to come. I was on my way back from being out of town with my wife, and some others already had plans. But one guy said he was already in bed, but instead of staying there, he made the 30-minute drive at 10 o'clock at night to go be with him. Hearing that blessed me beyond measure. Many times... It is those little sacrifices that mean so much in establishing trust and love. For the first time, I see the beginning of a family being established, rather than just friends. It has been costly to maintain this standard of holiness, and there will continue to be challenges and hurdles, but God always rewards those who choose to be faithful to his word and devoted to his pattern. I still dearly love all those who chose to leave, and would do anything for them if they needed me. But my primary responsibility as a shepherd is to those who choose to be a part of what God entrusts me with. Our motto has become, growing closer to reach farther. And we believe in it wholeheartedly. For this statement is rooted much deeper in scripture than most realize. It is the avenue to the purpose, as we will discuss this concept more in this last chapter. Now let me be clear, the local church structure goes well beyond just the need for membership or partnership. And el- and eldership, though those two things are pivotal to any properly functioning body. For a cell to work as it ought, each component has a job to do and must function as a working member of that specific cell. Inactive members damage the whole cell. Thus, each member working properly is paramount to a healthy cell. Science calls it cancer. The Bible references it as leaven. God knows this which is why he designed for everyone who has his spirit to have a role, a gift to use in serving the local body one is is partnered with in the gospel commission. So let's take a look at spiritual gifts. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 that there are many gifts, but one spirit who empowers the gifts in each individual. This means that if you have the spirit, you have something to add to your local body. Romans 8, 9. There is no excuse to be someone who attends church yet never serves within it by using the gifts that God has uniquely equipped you with. You've been enabled by the Almighty God through the Almighty Spirit to be an almighty blessing to those you fellowship with weekly, if not daily. Maybe it's through teaching, prophecy, service, generosity, etc. See the list in Romans 12:4 through 8 and 1 Corinthians 12:4 through 11. Maybe you serve in music, administration, or as the behind-the-scenes guy who is always active but rarely seen. Every church needs at least one. Point is, it's too easy today to just come to church to be built up rather than seek to serve others and build up the brethren within your particular family you fellowship among. Peter says in 1 Peter 4:10, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. The gifts that God apportions to believers is to primarily be used for one another in the fellowship, family you are part of, though not absent of all people. Galatians 6.10 says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, but especially the household of faith. Paul is commanding that those in the churches of Galatia are to take care of all people, but especially those who are part of the family of faith in their individual churches. We are without excuse as to why we don't serve somehow, some way. For grace has been given to all for the glory of God, and we must steward it well. Let us allow ourselves to be poured out as a drink offering in how we serve one another for the glory of Christ. Another aspect to the local church model is one that can be a bit more difficult for many Americans to receive and accept. And yet, the word is abundantly clear. Listen to these passages. First Peter 5.5 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12-13 We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord, and to admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Romans 13, 1-2 let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities, resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Titus 3, 1-2 Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. Hebrews 13, 17 Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. In just several of the passages that speak towards submission to authority instituted by God, we see pretty clearly what God is asking from those who say they have submitted to Him. Submission to those in a higher position of authority. This is not just something God is asking or even just expecting. He is commanding submission to be shown. This is a hard trait to learn in today's humanistic and individualistic culture, but that is why God ordained for you to be trained in this concept from birth, or at least a child should be trained in it. Honor your father and mother. Even before you could speak, God instituted a form of submission that you had to learn in order to be a member of a unit that functions well. This was so that when you came to Christ, it would be instilled in you for something much greater than just the earthly construct of family. He gave you a quote-unquote schoolmaster so that you would already be aware of what it means to come under an authority figure. Not to just survive under leadership, but to thrive by knowing how to respect, obey, and submit to them even when you don't want to or even when you think it's unfair. He did this so that you could already be equipped to function well as a member within God's design of church. When you read through Ephesians 5, you will see a clear illustration of comparing the earthly family to that of a spiritual, heavenly family, as we briefly discussed earlier. Listen to what Paul says about a husband and a wife in Ephesians five thirty-one 31-32. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And this is the part I want you to pay close attention to. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This is not just a command for a husband and a wife. No, it is something much greater, with far deeper-reaching implications. This was actually a prophecy from the book of Genesis for the order of Jesus and his betrothed. In chapters 5 and 6, Paul uses physical relationships in a family to illustrate a greater yet spiritual relationship. Wives and husbands compared to the church in Christ. Children to parents as young believers to elders. Be warned of this. If you focus solely on the physical, you will miss the beauty, mystery, and superiority of the spiritual, and your understanding of Scripture will be limited and skewed. 1 Corinthians 2, 6-14 This is not to say that physical relationships do not have value. It just means that what is earthly does not carry the significance or value of that which is heavenly. Whether we like it or not, submission is both biblical and commanded by God. It isn't a question of preference or convenience, but of obedience. John fourteen twenty one. So, what do you do if the leaders you have sub- subjected yourself to in your church are being unfair or even unreasonable? What do you do if they expect things of you that while they are not unbiblical, they do require a bit more effort from you to comply? What if their requests don't fit in your schedule with your interests or your preferences? You see the common denominator in all of that? You. If something doesn't fit your liking, the immediate response of a person focused on self is rebellion, to various degrees related to the level of selfishness in you. It's an attribute of maintaining control, and too many today are living as those who only date the church. They never commit to partner with her in God's design. Eve demonstrated the sin of rebellion in the Garden of Eden. For when her eyes took a liking to the fruit, she chose to rebel against her authority, both Adam and God, Genesis 3, 1-7. Maybe she felt it was unfair for her authority to forbid her from such an appealing fruit, not realizing, realizing the command was a source of protection for her. All Satan needs is a small sliver of selfishness, and he will attack with a deception that is cloaked to the selfish heart. So, what does one do when an authority is being, quote-unquote, unfair? God has an answer for that. As any answer we would choose to give to these questions must be backed by the word, not what we think or feel. 1 Peter two eighteen 18-21 Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endure sorrows while suffering unjustly. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. According to God, it doesn't matter if an authority is being unfair or even unjust in their treatment of you. They will answer to God for their acceptable or unacceptable leadership. But he still expects you to do what you are called to do regardless of their actions for the Lord's sake. Read First Peter two, thirteen. A brother shared with me a principle regarding submission that he learned years ago when he was in the army. Respect the rank, not the person. I think that has some biblical merit to it. For when we focus on the person being worthy of respect, we then feel justified to disobey if they don't meet our criteria. But if we focus on their rank, then it has nothing to do with us, but only God's criteria. I know this seems unfair and it seems to go against what you see in the world today, even in much of the church, but let me remind you of the one who went before us to pioneer the way of the faith, Jesus Hebrews twelve three, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you might not grow weary or faint hearted. Here was a man who stood falsely accused, was unjustly beaten and flogged, spit upon, displayed as a criminal, and then was nailed to a cross as a sinless man to be a spectacle to all because of the sin of others, including yours and mine. If anyone had a quote-unquote right to say they were being mistreated, asked to do things that weren't convenient or fair, or expected to do things that weren't preferential, it was him. And yet, in the midst of his suffering, He was still thinking of us so that he could be an example, a pattern of what it looks like to follow him in order that we might be sanctified in truth. Read this often quoted passage, and I pray it impacts you as never before. 1 Peter 2, 22-24 He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. None of us deserve what he so freely gave as a result of what he unfairly suffered on our behalf. So surely... In light of what Jesus went through on our behalf, being able to still submit, respect, and love someone in authority who's being a little, quote-unquote, unreasonable, isn't too much of a cross to bear, especially when it is an authority God has ordained. Maybe this would be a good time to read Isaiah 53 before moving forward. If we are honest... I think we would all agree that the problem in much of the church today is not that many elders are being overly unreasonable and unfair in their governing of the flock, as that is probably a rare case and usually an escape for the real problem. The real issue is that the flock proudly thinks they don't need to be governed by any spiritual leadership, despite what the word says. To many, church is strictly a volunteer-based country club environment that is supposed to be geared towards serving them. And yet those same people who refuse or are hesitant to submit in the church will most often obey the laws of the land without much fuss. Many will, often pay, many will often obey their boss at work without much complaining, or even if they complain, they will still do what's asked of them. Some of them actually function as the boss and hypocritically require their employers, employees to do the very thing they will not do for the church leadership. Even as children, many will obey their parents, even if they don't really want to obey. Those who engage in military operations will obey their commanding officers with little issue, even if they don't agree, or even if it will cost them their life to do so. But for some reason, when it comes to church leadership today, many think it can be treated differently. What is the common factor in all of this? It's that submission is expected in those earthly realms, and any disobedience to earthly authorities produces a consequence. And that consequent affects us in ways we don't like. You see, our obedience is still hinging on ourselves. It is our own selfishness, not Christ and His holiness, that motivates our obedience. Hence, we have not really submitted. If we disobey our parents, we receive discipline in one way or another. If we disobey our authorities in this nation, we might get fined or go to jail. If we disobey our boss and rebel against them, we may get a pay cut or get fired. If a soldier disobeys his commanding officer, he gets punished, possibly dishonorably discharged. These are all consequences we don't want, so therefore we choose to, quote-unquote, submit, even if we don't want to. Yet, when it comes to our spiritual authorities in the church, which God has clearly set up, ordered, commands, and even talks about more in His Word than any other authority on earth outside of Jesus, we treat it as if it were volunteer-based as if we only have to submit when we are in agreement. I've known many who have compromised their convictions in order to keep their job, but will use their convictions as an excuse to not submit to leadership in the church. The hypocritical actions of many reveal that they give elders no authority over them other than what they are willing to allow them to have. This is not submission, thus it is not obeying the command of God. I believe Satan has done a masterful job in America by removing the sting of consequence for rebellion within the church as he did with Eve. Thus the expectation to come under any spiritual authority has almost utterly been removed. When the rod of discipline is removed, children go astray, both in the home and in the church. We have grown soft and operating as God intended and are afraid to hold anyone to the full expectations of following Christ. Sheep don't submit to the shepherds because the shepherds are no longer allowed to or choose not to carry a rod thus we have a church full of sheep who are wandering around thinking because jesus says he is a shepherd they are safe to rebel against the elders but who was it who ordained for there to be shepherds or elders in the church to begin with that's right god thus to go against his will is to violate your submission to him not just the elders hebrews thirteen seventeen, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account Notice that the word of God has given the task of watching over souls to the shepherds, not just the shepherd. That is not an easy task, especially when you're watching over stubborn sheep who insist on their own ways and preferences. Now, I'm not a Greek scholar, so I don't feel fully qualified to give an opinion on what I'm about to say regarding the rest of the verse. However, I have always struggled a bit with how the rest of it is stated in the ESV, as it doesn't seem to fit both contextually and with the targeted audience in that verse. Listen to how this version states the last of the verse. Do this so that there, the shepherds, work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. The NIV emphasis mind. Weighing in on other verses in which God talks about how the sheep should view their shepherds, such as 1 Thessalonians 5, 12-13 and 3 John 1, 5-8, this rendering of the verse seems to fall more in line contextually with what the author is trying to convey. Sheep should submit... So that the work of the shepherds is not burdensome, but joyful. They should not, quote unquote, insist on their own way, 1 Corinthians thirteen five, but rather align themselves with God's way. However it is intended, both concepts are true. Shepherds must govern the flock in a way that is not just domineering, but as examples in love. They must hold the flock to the standard of holiness and expect those in their charge to follow Jesus as he entails, as they themselves seek to be the example of both to the flock. And the flock should respect those over them and highly esteem them in love, considering them worthy of double honor. Pause for a moment to ponder the weight of what double honor means. So that their work of overseeing souls may be a joy and not a burden. Whatever way you translate Hebrews 13:17, you can know from the fullness of the word both concepts are true. Thus both should be applied. Now though I feel it goes without saying, I also have been in ministry for over seven years and I know that it is not always the case. So I'll briefly address what to do if those over you are asking you or even demanding you to do something that is clearly against the word. I'm not addressing if it goes against your personal conviction regarding doctrine, as individual convictions on doctrine can be a tricky slope to deal with on certain topics. It is extremely difficult to answer specifics about personal convictions and doctrinal views in a broad, general way, since there are so many possibilities in each circumstance. It also runs a great risk of being misunderstood through means of a book, so I will refrain. All I will do is encourage you to study harder, seek more, search out counsel, and be willing to listen before speaking. James 3, 17-18 What I am addressing are the things which are clearly unbiblical in light of the New Covenant. Let me give you an example. I once had a woman who came to my wife and I for counsel. She had a younger relative who was struggling in her relationship with her boyfriend. So this younger woman, who we will call Susan, went to her quote-unquote pastor and asked for help in what she should do. Susan was given the counsel from this quote-unquote pastor, what I'm about to say is not a lie, to lay in bed together with her boyfriend, speak in tongues together, and then have intercourse with one another. Remember, they were not married. Now, this counsel is wrong on so many levels and is clearly providing unbiblical guidance. So what should she have done in this situation? Should she submit since the Bible says to submit to leaders? In this case, no. She should have sought separate counsel and set to seek the Lord through his word to find what he says. Then she should have approached this quote-unquote pastor with what the word says, not personal opinions or feelings, as too often people follow their feelings and opinions rather than what is written. But in respect for their position, she should have approached them to share the word and give time to listen to this quote-unquote pastor, but by no means should she have obeyed the the counsel given. The response the quote-unquote pastor gives to the word will go a long way in revealing if you should be under them in the first place. Unfortunately, there are bad examples on both sides of the spectrum. Shepherds who don't shepherd and lead well, and sheep who don't serve and respect well. But aside from the poor examples, we don't have to look far to see what the word clearly illustrates the need for a local church structure. One in which members of the body of Christ partner together in a local church, invest in and serve one another, commit and sacrifice for one another, all while submitting to a body of elders who are keeping watch over their souls. Poor examples do not negate the need to obey God. Thus, to be outside of this blueprint is to be outside of God's will, no matter how good you think the reason is. Now let me say this, in light of all that I have stated regarding the need to submit and be part of a local church. There are corrupt churches out there, led by corrupt and sinful men who are disguised as workmen of Christ. I am not saying you should be involved in these churches in any degree. For there are many quote-unquote pastors who are only serving Christ so that they can make a buck from the pulpit at the expense of his sheep. Their God is their belly and they deceive the hearts of the naive. Romans 16, 17-18, Jude 1, 12-13. There are churches that are perverting grace and casting aside the need to strive for holiness, Second Corinthians seven one, Hebrews 12.14, and righteousness, beckoning people to come as they are and leave as they were, instead of challenging them to repent. These churches must be avoided at all costs. Every town in America probably has at least one out there who are, simply put, operating more like a business and seem to have no desire to be biblical in function, application, pursuit, nor in doctrine. I say this with extreme caution as it isn't something to be stated lightly and requires discretion and discernment. There are churches out there that are not of the Lord, despite their claim, but they are tares among the wheat and they must be avoided, literally have nothing to do with them as they are not led of the Spirit. I'm sorry, as they are led of a Spirit, just not the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 11, 12-15. Again, this is no light accusation, so proceed in your situation with extreme discernment. You don't want to be used as an instrument of division, yet you also don't want to be a victim of deception. I understand that it can be tough to discern situations regarding submission, no matter if it's authorities in the nation, husbands, parents, a boss at work, or elders of a church. But one thing we can know for sure, God is a God of peace, not confusion. He is a God of order and not chaos. Thus, if we truly seek Him and want to honor His word, He will faithfully guide us in what we are to do in every situation through His word. I have often heard that there are many things in the word which are gray areas. While there might be a few areas in which that might be true, I disagree with that notion, generally speaking, as I believe there are only areas we haven't searched out earnestly enough until the gray becomes black and white. Trust God to lead you as you commit to follow Him. So whatever church you are part of, Try beginning to see those you worship and fellowship with as a family. And then proceed to treat them as such. Seek to intentionally and sacrificially invest in them more than just on a Sunday. Pray for the Lord to reveal a person or family that needs building up. And be the example of Christ to them in order to help them learn what it means to be a heavenly minded. Have people over for dinner. Invest in their lives. Start up accountability meetings. Anything you can do to help instill a sense of family. Be quick to give and sacrificially support people in your fellowship who are in need, as well as the work of Christ your fellowship does. Maybe you are reading this and you are an elder of a flock. Humbly serve those in your charge. Teach them well. Pray for them. Discipline them. Hold them to the expectation of holiness and shepherd them in a way that brings honor to the Lord. Be involved in their lives more than just hospital visits and teaching them on Sundays. Don't be enthralled with numbers or intimidated by a lack of them. But seek to be faithful in the small things no matter how many sheep God has entrusted you with. If you're reading this as one who is struggling to submit under eldership in a local church, look to God's word first and foremost, not your feelings or opinions. Seek to be a blessing to your elders and commit to pray for them. Make sure that instead of criticizing your elders, seek to sacrificially be an encouragement to them as you help to bear their burden. Galatians 6.2 Don't skip the fellowship for worldly things. Complain about the music. Critique every little thing the teachers say or do in their sermon, or fall asleep while they're teaching. All those things are some of the biggest discouragements to pastors, and those actions declare to them their sacrifices for you are not appreciated, no matter how much you put in the offering plate. The average church member has no comprehension how much preparation and prayer a good shepherd puts in for his flock, or what he has to deal with on a daily basis. Show them your appreciation through your commitment. Loyalty, encouragement, and sacrificial service to the body, including in your attendance. Show respect for God, your elders, and everyone else who has a part to play in leading by consistently being on time and attending. Respect and courtesy need to make a comeback in the church today, as those are two characteristics commanded by God that are severely lacking in many. And as a part of your church, invest in the lives of the members you assemble with each week. I mean truly invest in them. Encourage them rather than critique, and seek out opportunities to pour yourself out for them rather than only be filled up by them. Initiate the change to be the change, I'm sorry, initiate the charge to be the change you want to see in others. And if you are part of the ever growing population of professed Christians who have distanced themselves from any notion of church membership, I want to encourage you to get plugged into a church body despite your feelings and hesitations. I know it can be a daunting task to even think about finding a church home, but good ones are out there, and they are in need. Don't make the same mistake I did by neglecting what God considers His beloved, even if you don't appreciate them as God does. God has given us all we need to thrive, no matter the position, but His grace is only supplied when we choose to humbly walk in the pattern He sets forth in His Word.